This is the conclusion of a mini-series about three friends from Illinois who served in Vietnam. This episode features Ralph Petrine, an infantryman. This one is pretty raw, folks, but it's a hell of a story, and I hope it moves you like it did me. From Villa Park, Illinois, this episode is called Bonafide Badasses. Let's start with Elmhurst. What was it like growing up there? Good middle-class family, you know, Italian, old Italian family. Couple brothers, couple sisters. Good old Catholic uh, regime. Yeah, I went to parochial school, put 12 years in that thing. I guess you would call me a very conservative person. And my children, beside my son, are very liberal. So, and my ex-wife is very liberal. She protested the war. And I was in the war. And how we met in... uh, Like, you talk about opposites. Do you think the country was better or worse back then? You weren't rich, but you could afford a new car. You all had a home. I mean, you went to school with patches on your knee. Nobody busted your balls about designer jeans and all that shit. You didn't see single parents back then. I mean, now it's just predominant. I think nowadays, young kids growing up have so many pressures on them. I mean, my kids, I watched them go to school one thing after another. Everything is a, is a point of issue, you know? Your clothes, your attitude, your this, where you live, you know, what you drive. Uh, did any of your family serve in the military? My brother ended up going in the Marine Reserves. My namesake was killed at the Battle of the Bulge, Ralph Anthony Petrine. If that's a... Obviously never, obviously never met him. So. Yeah, right. <laughs> so that's about the only one I know. Uh, I'm, I've never been in combat. I've never served in the military. But I'm, I'm fairly convinced that no one really survives combat unless they're tough. And it means they're either tough to begin with or you became tough. How about lucky? Lucky? It's really what it breaks down to? I, I don't know. Uh, yeah. Situation. Fate. God. I shouldn't be sitting right here right now. I've died two times in my life, not from combat, from future stuff that grew out of it. But as for situation I was in and, and survived, ask myself many times, how would I survive this? I don't know. Can't answer that. Randy and John are going to be in this. So I got to ask, how did you, how'd you meet Randy and John? Oh, well, let's start with Randy. Randy baseball. We probably intermingled since we were about nine from Little League and stuff. John, I didn't meet till high school. We were always the guys with the liquor, so we always had beer, so we hooked up that way, I think. (laughs) Can you remember the first time you heard about Vietnam, and did you know anything about the country? Knew nothing. I would set up why I went in the Army. My parents, you didn't talk to my parents. My my father, I never talked to my father ever in my life. You know, I mean, so getting advice from somebody over whether to go in or not, I was kind of on my own there. And I was getting in trouble a lot. We were getting arrested like one, I mean, literally once a week we're getting picked up. I mean, we're doing stuff that's really, it was not good. So I started thinking, man, I'm either going to end up in jail, dead or whatever, uh, doing stupid stuff. So I'm joining the army. You didn't really think of how big of a decision or what you were doing was until you went in. And then once you got there, wasn't good. 
Do you think it was kind of strange that you never heard of this country called Vietnam, but all of a sudden it's like, this is the most important. We must fight this war. And well, you know, I've always thought about that. I've learned so much more about the war now. I was 18 years old or so. I, I didn't have the brains to come out of the rain. I didn't even know what to expect. I didn't know what to expect in the Army. The Army scared the shit out of me. I wasn't in basic training two weeks, and black guy and a white guy got into it. And I remember hearing a white guy's rib crack when a kid stabbed him. That's how my basic training went, you know. That was an education, man. We always thought we got in a lot of trouble. We didn't, we didn't do shit compared to a lot of these other guys. Then you get the guys coming out of the Chattanooga Mountains and stuff. It was different, man. And you're stuck in a place with about 50 people in a barracks. You know what I mean? You have to learn how to shit in front of a... They don't have no stalls. you got to sit and do your business in front of about 20 people. You know what I mean? You, if you can't do that, you wait till late at night. But then, see, they had to clean the, the, the urinals and stuff. You mess that shit up for inspection next morning, you, you know, you'll, you'll get a blanket party. Educated me from day one or changed me. I don't know about educated me, but... You started that hardness. You weren't very hard when you went there, but by the time you were out of basic training, you, you, you were doing better. They kicked the shit out of us in basic training because I think they knew, you know, you're going to be in the weeds in about a month and a half, and there was nothing good about the weeds. <laughs> so, From the limited research I'm able to get, records seem to indicate overwhelming support for the war originally. And that, which eventually deteriorates. I, I don't know, you know, I think we went there to kind of stop aggression. I really don't know, because we didn't fight a war. We didn't fight a war. We got our ass kicked. I remember sitting on the border always saying like, God, am I glad these guys don't got choppers and tanks, because I think we'd be in the ocean by now. I mean, seriously, they were dedicated. I got to ask you a question, because you said we won the war, or you could say you lost the war. When I see 50,000 names on a wall, not to mention millions of Asians, does anybody really win? Oh, yeah, they, they're worse than what, what what they lose. People don't realize what they did to them when we left. They butchered them all. The Arvins, everybody. You have to remember when I came back, it, it turned into a blank page. I drank and got high like it was my job. I probably didn't even have a thought for 15 years. We never talked about it. Us guys, we never talked about the war. Yeah, I think we're all damaged. There's no doubt. You had to tell your parents and your siblings that I'm shipping off. How did they How did they take that news? It's hard to believe, but I never talked to my dad. Yeah, he had to go through my mother to talk to him. Don't ask me what that was all about. Nobody ever said a word to me about going in the Army. In fact, I had it set up that a friend of mine would take me to the draft board the morning I was hopping on the train, and my mother made my father take me. And my, I remember going down there, never said a word, and the whole car ride down to Dearborn or wherever it was, and I got out of the car, and he goes, well, goodbye. I'll never forget that. I was like, okay. <laughs> That's really all he said to you? That's it. Well, goodbye. Wow. My old man was different. Where were uh, Randy and John during all this madness? Well, me and Randy, were gonna, we tried to go in the Air Force. We were going to be special forces, something or other, blah, blah, blah. And then we found out because your police record, you ain't going in the Air Force. So the Army didn't care if you were a murderer. They would have taken you. You know what I mean? What were your actual initial orders and where were you to report to for basic training? In Fort Campbell, Kentucky. Basic training was rough, man. You get up at four o'clock in the morning, you had to run two, three miles before you ate. You know, a lot of times they're busting your balls. You have to do push ups and eat. It was a complete breakdown. And they did a good job of just breaking you down. What were the uh, attitudes of your fellow recruits? Well, everybody hated. 
there was nobody saying, hey, 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 we're in Vietnam over the hill. Everybody was like, I'm fucking leaving. You know what I mean? I'm going AWOL. And a lot of guys did. A lot of guys just said, fuck this and left. I mean, you know, they went to jail or whatever. Once they found them, a lot of guys got away. But if you physically survived that, you got out. There's a lot of guys that didn't make it. I mean, literally fatter guys, they couldn't, they couldn't make the runs and you wouldn't survive just for the fact, like where I was at, when you ran, if you lost a guy, the whole company had to turn around, pick the guy up and keep running. And you didn't complete your run until everybody got there. And after a while, you'd take a lot of beatings. That's how you got out of basic. You survived it. And it turned into being a good thing. I was in good shape when I went there. Cause when you go there, you better have something going for you. What was the plane like to Vietnam? It was a long ride, and we stopped everywhere in Alaska and Guam. Well, how about you, when you did arrive? I think I went into Cameron Bay. Well, like I said, the first day you get it, and they open the thing, and you're like, eh, you know, you, you think you're like going to Bellwood or something, you know what I mean? And you step out of the plane, and there ain't shit there. I mean, it hottered and bejesus, and it stunk. I mean, you thought you were in the garbage dump. And I remember getting on, not far off the plane, and some old guys are all, you know, FNGs, they call us, fucking new guys. So, you know, everybody's FNGing you right off the thing, and you're like, what the fuck is that? You got your new fatigues on, and everybody's busting your balls. Uh, so then you look at the old mama sons. I remember looking at one, you know, they had, they, they suck on sugar cane, so they have, their teeth are like gone. And I was like, whoa, you know, and I remember the guy saying, he said, you'll be jumping that one before you know it. I'm like, what? I go, yeah, right. <laughs> I was thinking, like, there's no, no way no. you're going what I think Well, you're I was going. trying to put it nice, but uh, yeah, right. <laughs> oh, my Lord. Oh, yeah, you learn a lot of things there, bro. Let me tell you. Then you find yourself standing in a 22-person line because they had some bang-bang girl in a bunker somewhere. Yeah. The question I had were, what were your first impressions of this country? I guess you answered that question. Well, my, it scared the shit out of me. There's nothing there. Nothing. What, what, were your, uh, what were your duties? What was your primary job while you were there? Out in the field. Yeah, I mean, they sent, that's, that was my first job. That was, that's what changed my life. You have to go to an in-country jungle school. I find myself out in the middle of freaking nowhere. It turns out to be like Diamond 3, and I'm filling sandbags. I wasn't even there I don't know how many hours or whatever. We got hit that night. We were almost overran. Uh, I went through my first mortar barrage. It rained mortar. I, I, yeah, you have to realize when you're, you're not expecting that. Like, I mean, your, your mind, I think, is still in Elmer's. And then all of a sudden you go in there and you finally realize these motherfuckers are trying to kill you. And I, I didn't know what to do. You know what I mean? You're, you're getting your ass shot up. You're in the bunkers, this, that. Shit's raining out of the, It's so hard to describe the intensity of shelling or fire or automatic weapons. And then, you know, you get the out of the bunker. Here they come. You're like, who's coming? What? You know, that. I went to the Super Bowl right out of the box. Turned into a major ground attack. The cleanup, the whole thing, we don't even want to get into it. It was, it was a freaking mess. And actually the next night I found myself in the bunker crying like what the fuck did I do it, it was ungodly it was ungodly first guy I met in from Chicago in country uh, Larry Keller and they were bagging him the next morning uh, him and his buddy from Chicago I knew the guy what maybe an hour 
you know, you guys from Chicago. Yeah, I'm from Chicago, of course, from Elmer's, but you say Chicago, right? And, uh, you know, they, he didn't make it. And uh, I don't know how many we lost. It was, it was nuts. It was fucking nuts. All I know is one thing I came out of that night, and I said, there ain't no fucking way I'm going home. No way. You know, I just resigned to the fact I wasn't going home. I, I lucked out. I had a couple older guys help me out. You know, just do this, do that. Do, don't do this, don't do that. And if you listen, you, you learn a lot. You try to find a set of old fatigues to put on so they don't recognize you. And then you find out later that guys would kill you for a new set of fatigues. We weren't really well supplied. <laughs> and the organization of the whole thing was, just in my case, it was so fucked up. Hey, I don't know what I was doing from day to day. I mean, there was no semblance of what we were doing or where we were going or what we were trying to achieve. You had none of that. I mean, it was nothing. You sit here, get your ass shot off, or you're in Tainan, and they rain you 122s off the mountain on you. you know, I mean, you're like, what the fuck? Well, what are we doing? When you're a new guy, you get stuck with all the bullshit. Bunker guard. I was doing shit patrol or whatever. You had to burn your shit. I got offered a job of driving a five-ton record. I said I could drive. I never drove a truck in my life. And I said I could drive that son of a bitch. Because, I mean, you figured I got to get out of the fucking field. They need uh, somebody to drive. I guess they, they aren't even authorized to have a truck in an infantry company. But it was used to unload all the mortar rounds. Well, I found out now I'm working in the goddamn ammo dumps. And they're sending me to freaking nowhere to unload a chopper onto this or that. And then I got shot up in that thing. They blew the freaking battery boxes. <laughs> so that thing didn't last long. I don't know how many months I did that. Well, who are we fighting? That is a complicated question. A lot of people don't realize that it was two types of war. It was versus an army, and it was a guerrilla war. For folks who don't exactly. know, can you explain who the two... The Victor Charlie BCs, the black pajamas, and then you had your regulars, the NBA. And you could tell they were all outfitted, not all out, out what do you call outfit, they had a fucking helmet on, you know what I mean? As for the pajama people, were always the people that were going to whack you from a village or something. You didn't know who they were taking in weapons. That was a daily experience when you're out in the field. Whatever catches of weapons or whatever, you blow every night. Did you ever have a situation where, because it is a guerrilla war, did you ever have a situation where trust was put in someone and then you turned out? Never trusted nobody. I didn't trust the Arvins, the South Vietnamese force. I've almost gotten killed by Arvins. We had an Arvin Jackson. There was an Arvin compound right next to us, and we never got along with them. There was fire exchange between bases. You know, everybody was for sale. Kit Carson's used to get Chew Hoys. Yeah, when the shit happened, you know, they were on your side for, well, they think you're losing, they're going over there. This is the South Vietnamese. South Vietnamese. Well, Chew Hoys was a program. Say you were a guerrilla or whatever you were, and we'd accept you, and then you worked for us, scouting or whatever. Whoever figured this fucking program out. When I dropped the name of the division, the unit, I should say, they said, well, that was an exceptional unit. With so many units in the war, what earned that reputation? Second out of 27 was involved in some major, major fighting on the, well, you're on the border. The Ho Chi Minh Trail came right out at the Parrot's Peak, and that's where we were. Our AO was that whole area, south of Tainan, Tainan, Dao Tiang, you know, the Hobos, the Boilers, and uh, they worked that area. So body count, everything in Vietnam's body count. And my unit was not for the faint of heart. <laughs> they were a good unit. Probably still are to this day. I mean, they, they feared the wolf answers, no doubt about it, first and second. We got involved in some... When I first got there, it was... 
It was like going to the, I, I, I hate to say Indians because you're, <laughs> but I mean, there was scalp racks. There was all kinds of shit. Dismemberment was a huge part of that war. On the roads, in the field, by villages and stuff, they were always dismembering or doing something. I mean, it seemed like everywhere you turned, somebody's head was on a stick, you know? Somebody explained it to me one time that said that in their religion, if their body's not intact, they roam the world, you know, looking for their body parts. So and I think we even had a program that we used to have choppers go around at night with playing screaming and all kinds of, it was, it was the war, it was the fucked up, most fucked up thing you could be involved in. It was a rough unit. It wasn't folklore, it was, it was a fact. There were some ass kicking dudes in that company, believe me, some really, really bona fide badasses. And the NVA and the VC, the enemy, if you will, was heavily outgunned, under-equipped, out-financed, yet they prevailed. How is that possible? Can Numbers. They just kept shoving guys down the trail, you know what I mean? They had disposable bodies. They can send people into the wire. We would never do that. But I think if they didn't come, they got shot. I mean, with their regime, they'd kill you. You know, I mean, just like the Chinese. They don't like what you're doing, they'd shoot you. This was a fierce and determined enemy. Oh, you couldn't find a guy sitting in his shit for three days to get a shot at you. I mean, when you find out their resolve, I mean, when you have sappers come in, a guy with a, a shape charge or something come into the wire and just blow himself or something, they live like dogs. Well, we all did, but I mean, they really live like dogs. They'd live in a freaking tunnel, pop up out of a spider hole and engage you in whatever. Yeah, they were. It wasn't like we had a front like North and South Vietnam. They were everywhere. You were surrounded by shit. <laughs> I called it like death. You weren't in Saigon in some office building. Your ass was out there. I lived in a half a culvert. It's like a 36-inch diameter, half of a sewer culvert. That's what I lived in with a lot of sandbags on top. You were in a, was it a regular or occasional tunnel rat? I, it was kind of a funny thing. We found this huge tunnel complex. You have maybe 10 guys sitting there going like, who's going in the hole? So then you had to be like a badass and go, oh, you know, I'll go in the hole. And then the guy tells me, grab your, you know, the 45 and the flashlight. He said, go down about 10 yards and sit there. He said, don't go any further than that. And they were old tunnels or whatever turned out. Well, we eventually did. I came out and said, I didn't shit. And we put four Bangalores and we blew the living shit out of the whole system. I did it one time for shit. I don't even know why I did it. I think I was trying to be a badass. And then at the, another thought, you know, I'm like, well, not too good of an idea. You served in Rocket City? Tainin. That was rocket heaven. They had what believed there were 122s. They'd come off that side of the mountain, they'd rain on you. They're called Rocket City because they're firing at you. Right, right. Tain in, you damn near lived in your bunker. And they had what they called delayed fuses when they'd go in the ground and blow, and there were chunks of earth flying all over the place. So it, to this day, I still don't like nighttime. You always figured if you could survive till light daylight, you're going to make it. It all happens at night. So nighttime, I'm still... It's still panicky at night sometimes. And uh, I, you know, I was fortunate. Man, when you were just a, a straight humper, man, fuck, not good. You have to pull the trigger to survive. You have to engage to survive. How do you psychologically get to that point? How bad do you want to go home? It wasn't about the war. It wasn't about communism. It wasn't about us. When I saw dead GIs, I was like, fuck this. You know, game on. It was like, okay, it, like color. You know, I, I didn't know the dude from Adam. I, I mean, he's in a freaking bag the next morning. You're like, fuck them. You know, you're going to pull the trigger. Well, 
then it gets on how bad you want to go home. If I got to do this, I'll do this. And then what you have to decipher is when you get into it, and there's dudes that got into that, and how far are you going to go with this? You know what I mean? That's where villages get wiped out and shit, you know, because guys are just like callous to the situation. I started getting like that, and I, I, I was fortunate. I was sitting on the splash wall. And this nine-year-old kid could go through the wire like you'd be like, you got three strands of, of concertina. And they went through it like they were walking. And this little, about nine, ten-year-old kid went through there and they took took the claymore. I, I drew a bead on him and I, I, I'll never forget the kid looking me in the face. I, I could have just blown him away. I, I mean, I was like, and I mean, I wasn't by myself. There was a few other people there and nobody Nobody shot the kid, and by all rights, I should have freaking wasted him. He got out of the wire, and I mean, it went after him in tracks and stuff, but I'll never forget that kid looking at me. That kind of centered me a little bit, because I thought, man, maybe I'm not as big of a lowlife as I thought I was, because I couldn't. I don't know. I should have, but I didn't. I would have to say I was involved in a few different things that I would never admit to. Let's put it this way, there's, uh, when I die, um, I got some explaining to do. There was a time, I imagine, where you were told you're going back stateside. Do you remember, like, the idea, I, I'm, okay, I am going to survive this? I was always fearful that I was going to make it up until the last day I was there. I was always afraid the plane was going to crash. I didn't really realize that until I got to O'Hare, really. And I kind of said, man, I'm home. I had to run in the bathroom and get my military attire off because people hated you. You know, I mean, you were taking shit the minute you got off a fucking plane. Coming home was surreal. I mean, you're, you're what in the field? Weeks before you came home? No running water, no electricity. You know, you're shitting a half of a 50-gallon drum. <laughs> and then the whole thing kind of hit you. You know what I mean? How did it hit you? Well, the first thing I did, I can tell you exactly what I did. I took a cab to the Rexall drug store close to my house, and I went and got lime popsicles. And I sat there and ate a box of popsicles sitting on my duffel bag. Then I went home. I don't know if I ever really adjusted <laughs> Yeah, you end up being so freaking scarred. You don't really know how scarred you are until you get back in civilization. You've been there and now you're here and you're all of a sudden you're going like, wow, what? And then you try to start making sense out of what you did there because you're here and man, it fucks you up bad, you know? And then I was sick, horribly sick from the dioxin. I was AWOL forever how long. And I finally went back to Kansas, did my time in, in you know, in the jail or whatever they put me in and I was sick and they wouldn't help me. And I, and I kept trying to get help and, and stuff. So I said, fuck this. And I sat down and constructed this letter and I told, I sent it to Nixon and I told him what I thought, everything, everything. I mean, about the war, about uh, the, the lack of empathy being left in this shithole. Was there any choice lines that? Uh... <laughs> I, oh, I found out you can't swear at the president. I called him everything under the, and I put it in writing. I started in, and I just didn't stop. I was like, you motherfucker. I mean, believe me. Well, 
when you get Washington calling your CO over what the fuck is this guy doing, and then they were going to court-martial me. I said, I don't care what you do me, I want out. DD me, I don't give a shit. I can't do this no more. And I was coming apart. And I was so pissed off. Of it. I wasn't getting, I was sick. I mean, I was sick, sick. And they weren't doing shit. They were trying to get me for malingering, but I had all this shit wrong with me. Then I was so close to getting out. I was weeks away from getting out. And I was like, well, now I'm not taking a DD because I'm getting out and fuck you. I said, I'm, now I'm, I'm going out on my own terms. When I got out, I was so freaking high and drunk, but I stood in front of the barracks. Vaughn was my CO and I called him everything under the sun. I was like, you motherfuckers. Well, then they were, I found out I was still in the army for 24 hours after they, after they did that. They gave me two hours to get off the base or I was going to jail. So that was my final day in the army. A different person. You can't be the same person. I, I don't know that I ever fit in ever again. You'll never, ever get that out of your system. You certainly tried. You were married? My ex-wife took the brunt of a lot of stuff. Yeah, it wasn't good. But you met her quickly after you came back. Right. Her and my children probably saved my life. I mean, literally. I had about a long time with suicide and still do. Still, I mean, I don't think anybody that's ever been through anything, regardless of what it was so emotionally or whatever. Yeah, I've almost ate the pistol a few times. Yeah, it was a good thing. My daughter was born and, you know, that changed my life. My family's all to me. What's what I consider the one good thing I've done in my life. Were you able to talk to her eventually, or is this not? I think she tried to talk to me, but I don't think there was no talking to me. I think I was just angry. Or I, I'm still angry, I guess. You know, people tell me that. We were young. She had her problems. I had my, I really had my problems. Do you think that these experiences, you know, the stress, that cost you your marriage? Sure didn't help. You could say she did a lot of things, but I, I, I had a lot of baggage. Yeah, no doubt, no doubt. I had nobody to talk to. That was probably one of my major problems. It was a lot of drugs and a lot of drinking. That's all I know. I found out that if I drank enough liquor and did enough drugs, I'd black out and the, and the thoughts would quit. So that's what I did for a long time, long time. I am probably recently, since the stroke, three three or four years ago, uh, I'm learning to live uh, without blacking out. And that's been a, a project. When you have booze or drugs you can go hide in, it, it makes it easier. I, I tell you, you know, when you can just all of a sudden, the music, you want to turn the music off, you know, you go get wasted. You can sleep too. I don't sleep. Like I said, I'm still kind of fearful of the night. <laughs> Sounds stupid, but it's like there's nights I sit there and just wait. Wow, I just hope morning comes. I, I don't know why. I guess I've talked to people about PTSD and stuff, and I guess they, they inform you of stuff you do that you really didn't know was part of that. Did you ever have any problems with uh, anti-war protesters? I hate them. I would say I've never faltered from standing behind that war just for the fact of the people that died, the people that I knew of that died there and stuff, and... Uh, uh, and what it did to me, I guess. And I had to hide when I come back. Like I, the, the day I went back to college, I remember the guy's name. Found out I was a vet, and he started railing on vets and baby killers and shit. Stopped me from going to college because I wanted to, you know, I, I wanted to cut his freaking throat, you know. But uh, that's what we came back to, and I, I don't think any of us, anybody that was, I don't care where you were, you were, you had to go with that. Oh, you're a Vietnam vet. People do that still to this day. 
I mean, I'm single. You meet a you meet a, a woman, you know, and you tell her you're a Vietnam vet, and they're like, you know, because they usually had some involvement with somebody in their life with some fucked up vet. <laughs> so that leads me back to I don't think we all came unscathed out of this thing, you know. Take it a little bit further because now a lot of time has passed. And I asked Randy this. I'll put it a little bit more eloquently this time. Do you ever see someone, and this could be any situation, where you hear someone complaining about trivial, insignificant problems? Oh, you you, you get me going on that. I'm, I'm, oh boy, I tell you, it burns my balls. These people, everybody gets such a strong opinion about you. Come on, what are you talking about? You know, what'd you do? Nothing. But you got this big ass opinion and then you find out they're full of shit. I have to watch myself because, well, health-wise, I'd probably get my ass kicked by 90% of the people. <laughs> and this may not be your opinion, but from a lot of vets, is they, don't, they do not like lip service. I'll give you an example. There's a lot of support our troops bumper stickers. And people are like, you know what, talk is, is really cheap. Do you have an opinion about that? Well, yeah, I, I really take exception to people go, well, thank you for going there. And I, you know, that really kind of bugs me. I don't know why. Where were you people 40 years ago? How many of us were begging for help? I've been in fighting the VA for 40 years. I mean, back in the 80s, you said Agent Orange, they laughed at you like, oh, some goddamn, you make up all this bullshit. And then you find out as you further went through for so many years of how much lying they did to you, like per people knew about the effects of that and they just didn't, didn't do nothing. And if they would have said 30 years ago, you need to do this and this and this, probably be in way better health than I am now. I wouldn't be three heart attacks down the line. I had a heart attack when I was 39 years old. Massive. I died. And it was definitely, definitely Agent Orange. I got such weird shit going on with my nervous system and stuff. It just, I've had doctors, you know, like, what's that? Well, I, I don't know. I'll get like a perfect circle crap on my leg or something. I mean, it's like stupid. Nobody can tell you what any he is, you know? For lack of a better word, how did you contract it or, or what? So they used to spray the wire, spray the fields, and they used the Hueys and stuff to, with these big arms. They were gravity-fed arms, and they just turned it on and dumped the shit out the wings. Well, I used to have to refuel those, and they sprayed you, and you'd be you'd get sick. I mean, I, I we got dusted off over there, and uh, I broke out, and I had horrible chloracne and covered, covered in it. You go on sick call or something, you know, they go like, well, you got to leave that bad pussy alone or something. The government don't give you shit, and especially the VA don't. I, got, I do got to ask you about, you, you did survive the heart, well, yeah. if you were brought back. Did you have anything you want to say about having a second chance? I remember after the first heart attack, I just said, geez, I just want to see my baby's wedding, my youngest daughter's. And then I did live to see that. So then I was like, geez, maybe, maybe my time's going to get canceled. But, you know, then you have your second heart attack and you're, and then you're just like, well, you know, you're waiting for the Reaper to come. You know what I mean? He's right over my shoulder as we speak. You know what I mean? That's the way I look at it. That dude's been following me for a while. So the worst was a stroke. I had a stroke and it, that was, that was bad. Oh, with what you said a second ago, I mean, are, you feel you are ready? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, not, not, let's put it this way. I've gotten to the point now after the heart attacks. You find out how much you want to live is just saying, I don't give a shit, which is not true. I really do give a shit if I stick around. And then all of a sudden you find out life's valuable and then you go, yeah, you know something? I really don't want to go. 
Then you have another heart attack and it chips out another one. Then you have another heart attack and it chips out another one. And then you figure out where's it going. Then I did have a time with depression where I just said, you know, maybe it's time to go to the tree, get a get a bag of ludes and a bottle of Jack. And that's what I think I'd do. I'd hump out in the, in the weeds up north and let the animals have the carcass. Then after the stroke, I was like, well, time's come. You know, it's going. You don't believe how old you are. You know, I turned 64, and I'm like, Jesus, I'm older than dirt. Can you tell me the first time you saw the Vietnam Memorial and what that was like? My first trip was with my best friend, one of my best friends, on a motorcycle. I'm into I ride a lot. We drove to the wall, and um, that had to be maybe not eight, nine years ago. Yeah, I came apart. You know, I didn't think it would bother me. You never thought a monument could could do that to you. It was like, man, it was just like waves of shit came at you. It was a candlelight visual on a Friday night on Memorial Day. I lost it. And uh, I've been back quite a bit. I go on Memorial Day on a run. I think I've been there four or five times, and it's never gotten any better. I went with my son about three years ago. It was probably the highlight of my life. And uh, and he rode, we rode there. My brother, my son, good friend of mine, you know, some other people that were good friends that just went, you know, they said they went for me. I mean, it was pretty, pretty amazing to me. A lot of emotions. I know it must be difficult to put those emotions into words, but if you had to think like what you were thinking, like you see these names, like any, any specific thoughts come to mind? 58,000 died there, and I will never say that was for nothing. I, I don't have it in me. I, I couldn't. But there's not a good story on that wall, you know what I mean? And then I guess you get into, well, I'm here and you ain't. And I don't understand that. And, but I've not survived without crying, but I'm not a crier. That that dropped me. Because I even said to a friend of mine, I said, that, that war will not, I will not shed another tear for that war. Not true. I want to extend my gratitude to Randy Larson, John Kernigan, and Ralph Petrine for sharing their stories. This was my first foray into podcasting, and I would never have gotten into it if it wasn't for these guys. So, seriously, from the bottom of my heart, thank you, gentlemen. The Grind will return soon. We have three more episodes already recorded, and I am working in earnest to get them to you as soon as possible. As always, thank you for listening, and please subscribe and share.